The American POTUS Podcast is a 501c3 nonprofit show supported by listener patriots just like you. To help us keep the program going, please join others around the nation by considering a tax-deductible donation. You can make your contribution and see what exciting plans we have for new podcasts and other outreach programs at AmericanPOTUS.org. Thank you for your support, and we hope you enjoy this episode. On this episode of American POTUS, George Herbert Walker Bush, World War II pilot, congressman, ambassador, vice president, and president. His entire life was laser-focused on the service to his country. But when he lost re-election and was forced into retirement, he saw it as the next opportunity to help his nation. Eagerly stepping in when his voice and his actions would help the most. Stories of calm political perspective, dedication to national service, and a deep commitment to family and a good bit of fun. The post-presidency of POTUS 41. That's next on American POTUS. I'm Scott Brunn. With the help of presidential scholar Alan Lowe, we're opening the book on the men who have held our nation's highest office. In each episode, we'll tap into our nationwide cabinet of historians, authors, experts, and others to reveal the most compelling moments from these extraordinary patriots. We love it when we have a guest on that had a one-on-one personal relationship with a POTUS. And today's expert fits that bill. Gene Becker was George H.W. Bush's chief of staff from 94 until his death in 2018. She was in charge of several key moments in the president's post-White House years, the opening of his presidential library center in 97, the commissioning of the USS George H.W. Bush aircraft carrier, even special projects like the Bush-Clinton-Katrina Fund. And she knows her way around a keyboard as well. She's helped both Barbara and George put together several best-selling books, and she's also published a couple of her own, including her brand new book, The Man I Knew. Jean, we're really thrilled to have you on the show to talk about this all-American patriot. Well, it is a great honor to be here today. Thank you so much. Um, You know, I worked for the Bushes for 30 years, and to hear you say that I knew a POTUS personally, it still gives me goosebumps. Mm -hmm. So thanks for letting me talk about it. Jean, it's it's great to have you on American POTUS. Uh, Great to talk with you again. It's been, been too long. Can you tell our listeners, how did you first meet President Bush? And then how did you come to be his chief of staff? Um, Well, it's sort of a roundabout story. In my previous life, I was a newspaper reporter. I think sometimes President Bush was in a state of shock that he had a (laughs) journalist as his chief of staff. But I covered the 1988 election, the election he won to become president. I was part of the USA Today election team. And I interviewed every single candidate that year. It was so much fun. USA Today did a series of stories called The Candidates at Home. There was something like 15 people running that year. So I ran all over the country interviewing the people at home. I interviewed Vice President Bush and Barbara Bush at their house. And I was sort of drift in and out of his life. I was not the main reporter covering him. I was the feature writer. But where I really got to know them, how I really got to know her, both Barbara Bush and Kitty Dukakis agreed to write a weekly column for USA Today in September and October of the campaign year. 
It ran every Monday morning and I was their editor. And I worked with Kitty Dukakis's press secretary, but Barbara Bush cut out the middle person and she would call me every Sunday night to deliver her column to me. And I would usually have to edit it. It was usually too long. So I got to know her. So to make a long story short, I eventually got hired to be one of her uh, deputy press secretaries at the White House. I was very surprised, but because I had this relationship with her, the offers sort of came out of nowhere. Um, I grew up a Democrat. So <laughs> I, I really was pretty apolitical at that time, but yeah. You know, so anyway, I go to Houston with them when he loses in 1992. I go to Houston with them to help her with her memoirs. She wrote them herself, but I was her researcher, her editor, her sort of advisor. And when we finished the book, I was going to go back to being a newspaper reporter. And President Bush called me into his office one day and he said, Gene, his chief of staff, Rosa Maria, was going to retire. And he said, would you just stay a couple more months and keep the seat warm? I got to figure out who I should bring in to be my chief of staff. And I said, well, I really don't know how to be a chief of staff. I've never been anyone's boss. I've never you know, been in charge of a budget. I've really never been in charge of anything. I you know, was a writer and... He said, well, don't worry about it. If you could just stay through the summer. This was March of 94. I promise you by Labor Day, you can get on with your life. We <laughs> never talked about it again. <laughs> he didn't say Labor Day of what year, Gene? That yeah, was, well, uh... <laughs> that's a very good point. You're the first person to make that point. Thank, thank you. Thank you. You know, we just hit the ground running. We got busy. I do. I, I think about 25 years later, about a year before he died. I teased them about it. Hmm. And I said, sir, for 25 years, I've been living in fear. You're going to come in my office and say, oh, Gina, <laughs> I'm part of chief of staff. You're, to go. You're unemployed. And he yeah. thought I was crazy. He did not remember <laughs> this conversation. At all. That's great. So when you first got to Houston uh, in the in the wake of his loss in 1992, you talk about in the book his great sorrow and the great sorrow of Mrs. Bush uh, from that losing bid, how did they? How did he pick himself up after that kind of devastating loss in '92? You know, I was sort of an observer. I didn't know him well at all. Uh, I was a very low level staffer at the White House, and uh, it's interesting. We became friends because I sat at a card table in his kitchen office, his kitchen in the office. They didn't have anywhere to put me in the new office of George Bush. So I sat at this card table. So he would come in and make coffee and get a glass of milk for lunch. And there was this strange woman at a card table. Um, <laughs> he did not remember me from my reporter years. Uh, we talked about it a little bit. And and then he remembered. He's like, oh, yeah, you were, you were that one. I remember you now. Anyway, I was just sort of a backbencher watching him, and he was just quiet. I call it licking his wounds. He would come into the office every day and answer his mail, and he just sort of took his time to figure out what he wanted to do with the rest of his life to the point that he wrote himself a memo. He literally wrote himself a memo sort of outlining the do's and don'ts of the rest of his life. He, I put the memo in the book. He wrote that memo 
while he and Mrs. Bush were on a prince's cruise. I call it the love boat. (laughs) About a month after they left the White House, he surprised her. He thought it would be sort of good for them to get away. He signed up for a prince's cruise that he saw advertised on television. And they went about a month after they left the White House. Mm -hmm. Now, can you imagine walking on the ship in your swimsuit and your cover-up and you're on vacation, and all of a sudden, here comes George and Barbara Bush? (laughs) I, I can only imagine the passenger's reaction. The funniest thing that happened on that ship is President Bush told the great writer George Plimpton a few months later in an interview that he had worked out in the gym, taken a shower in the gym, which he maybe should have not done, out of this very public shower. And there's a man with the camera wanting to take his picture. You're not in the White House anymore, Mr. President. Right. Uh, But anyway, he wrote the memo on the cruise. And I would say by that fall, certainly by the first of the year, 1994, Mm -hmm. He, I think he just woke up one day and said, I'm back. Yeah. And he was often running into his post-presidency. He was. Well, in, in 2000, he had an experience that only one other president has had. He saw his son elected president. Can you relate a bit about how the president and Mrs. Bush handled that really nerve-wracking election <laughs> in 2000? Well, I'll go back to, to 1994. I do think George W., and Jeb both ran for governor of their respective states in 1994. George W. won Texas. Jeb did not win in Florida. I really do think his two sons jumping into those races helped bring him out of his post-election malaise because he was so excited that his sons were running. He also knew that if he were president of the United States, they probably would not have been able to run. I don't think I ever knew anyone, um, I'm going to use a cliche here, which President Bush would not approve of, but he truly lived when when a door closes, a window opens, and his losing the election in 92 opened the window for George and, and Jeb to pursue their own political dreams. So you fast forward to 2000, and by this time, Jeb has been elected president of Florida, I mean, governor of Florida. Oops, a little Freudian slip. Jeb had been elected governor of Florida. W had been reelected governor of Texas, now running for president. And then we have election night 2000, which will forever live in infamy when the networks called the election first for Al Gore. Then they took it back. Then they called it for George W., And then Al Gore actually called the governor of Texas to concede the election. And then his staff is saying to him, not so fast, Mr. Vice President. We feel Florida is too close to call. And the whole country was thrown into chaos. And George Herbert Walker Bush was an absolute wreck for the next six weeks. I used to take him to movies in the afternoon just to get him away from CNN. I'm like, oh my God, we're going to go watch, a, we're going to go to a matinee. We're going to get out of the office right now. Um, it was hard on him. It was it was a nerve wracking time. 
Not long after he took office then, Bush 43, George W. Bush, faced one of the biggest challenges ever faced by a president, the attacks of September 11, 2001. Can you tell us the story that you relate in the book of Bush 41 that day and then how he supported his son as his son faced that enormous challenge? Well, my, it's, it's, I feel sort of guilty that one of my favorite stories in the book about George Bush happened on 9-11. Um, so it, we, we, we all woke up that morning in Washington, D.C. President and Mrs. Bush and I had flown down from Kennebunkport, Maine the day before to attend a meeting of a cancer group called Sea Change that they had founded. We've been in meetings that all day, September 10th. They spent the night at the White House. I spent the night at a hotel, of course. They were wheels up from Reagan Airport, probably about 8, 8.30, probably about 8 o'clock, 9.11. I stayed in D.C. to attend a board meeting of the same cancer group. And then 9.11 happened, and uh, as soon as I could, I called the Secret Service in Kennebunkport, I wanted to know where they were. They were on a plane flying to Minneapolis, St. Paul. And I knew that all the planes in the United States had been grounded. And I thought, where are they? So the Secret Service agent said to me, I cannot tell you, Gene, where they are. You're on a unsecured line. Um, they're very worried about you in Washington. They've been wondering, they've been asking us to find you. And I said, I'm fine. I'm at the Renaissance Hotel. I'm fine. Um, where are they? But can you tell me anything? And he said, no. They have been taken to a secure, undisclosed location. Well, I'm sure you won't be surprised to know the first thing that came to mind was the secret hiding places in West Virginia, it had been built during the Cold War under the Greenbrier, I believe, where the city of Washington would have been evacuated to in, in the event of a nuclear war during the Cold War. And I thought, I know where they are. They're, they're in West Virginia. They're underground. So the day goes on, and that evening, the President of the United States is getting ready to address the nation, and the Renaissance Hotel in D.C., had very kindly brought large screen TVs into the lobby bar. Nobody wanted to be in their rooms by themselves. So they basically invited anyone who wanted to, to come watch the president downstairs. And I'm sitting there with some of my colleagues and my cell phone rings. Everybody was surprised. Cell phone service in DC that day was not very good. Uh, and, but my cell phone rang and I answered it and it's, George Herbert Walker Bush. And I said, sir, oh my gosh, I am so excited to hear from you. I said, I know you can't tell me where you are, but are you guys doing okay? He says, well, what do you mean? He says, I says, well, the Secret Service told me you were at a secure, undisclosed location. He says, Gene, Barr and I are at a Hampton Inn outside <laughs> Milwaukee, Wisconsin. <laughs> and I... I was surprised to hear that answer. <laughs> I told him where I thought he was, and he laughed. He says, no, 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 they grounded our plane. They grounded our plane in Milwaukee. The I, He said, he, 
is that I think the entire Secret Service office of Milwaukee met our plane. They took us to this Hampton Inn. He says, Gene, it's pretty secure and undisclosed. I don't think anybody would expect to find George and Barbara Bush at a Milwaukee Hampton Inn. And then he said they had talked to their son a couple times that day. He said he's doing well. He's strong. He says he he was very proud of his son. He says he's very calm and he's strong. And he said, Barr and I, like everyone in America, we've been watching TV all day. And he said, a little while ago, we realized we literally had not eaten all day. So we walked across the street to an outback steakhouse. Now, once again, imagine <laughs> eating right. at an outback steakhouse right. in suburban Milwaukee and in walks George and Barbara Bush. Yeah, and right. he, said, he said, Gene, they gave us a standing ovation. Oh, he says it was nice. so touching, and they they told us they were praying for our son. It was uh, <laughs> is yeah. that not the yeah. most bizarre story? It is, yeah, it is amazing, <laughs> amazing. So we know that President George H. W. Bush famously had a Rolodex very full of friends, famous and not from around the world. Gene, in, in your your years with him, seeing him interact with those world leaders, who were his closest friends? Which relationships stood out most to you? That's easy. John Major easy. of okay. Great Britain mm-hmm. and Brian Mulroney of Canada. Yes. It was very difficult for him. He needed to choose one of them to be a eulogist at his funeral. It was really hard because he's extraordinarily close to both of them. And he finally picked former Prime Minister Mulroney just because he had known him a lot longer. Uh, John Major actually became... Uh, came into office replacing Margaret Thatcher while President Bush was in the White House. Brian Mulroney started serving during the Reagan years. So they were extraordinarily close. And the thing that really touched me is the last couple of years, uh, Brian Mulroney, for him, it was an easy trip down from Montreal to Kennebunkport in the summertime. He would come every summer. But John Major came The last three or four years, he made a point to come to the United States to see his friend, which really touched me. Um, One of the more random stories in the book, and I tell this story just to show how bizarre and weird my life was. (laughs) I was at home one night watching TV. President Bush was traveling. and I was home. I was so happy. Home watching TV, doing nothing. And my phone rings. And it's President Bush and Brian Mulroney. They're in a Walgreens. I can't remember what city. They're in a Walgreens. They, they just left the Outback and they're going to Walgreens. Uh, well, apparently Brian Mulroney had a really bad cold. And President Bush remembered that I had just gotten over a cold. So they were calling me to get advice on what to buy for Brian Mulroney's cold. And I'm thinking to myself, I am not qualified to give this advice to the former president of the United States and the former prime minister of Canada. But I said to President Bush, well, it was evening. And I said, I'm a huge fan of NyQuil because it, it will help you sleep. And and you won't cough during the night. So President Bush literally hollers, Brian, Gene says to buy NyQuil. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. You can't make this up. You can't. Well, what do you you think brought those men together? What what was the basis of that friendship? What, What was the origin of him being so close to those two? 
I think it probably starts with the fact that Canada and Great Britain are, of course, our two greatest allies, United States allies. But they, these are three men who got along really well together. I think they pretty well had the same thoughts about world affairs and world leaders. I'm not going to tell you any gossip, gentlemen. That's okay. But I have heard them gossip about some of their fellow world leaders. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm not going to reveal it on your podcast. This would be the place to do it. But, you know, they they had shared interests and shared beliefs. And they and they and all three of them had great senses of humor. And they just got along wonderfully. And I would go so far to say it was good for the world. It was really good for the world. And, and another major partner uh, would be Helmut Kohl, who President Bush also was close to, not quite as close as he was to Mr. Major and Mr. Mulroney. But, you know, that was an era where these leaders just truly worked together. And I think it was good for the world. Of course, another thing good for the world was that President Bush was put to work by other presidents um, around the world, of those assignments that Bush 41 had in his post-presidency, which ones do you think were the most impactful and which ones do you think were the most meaningful to President Bush? I'll give you a short answer and a longer answer. The short answer, ironically, President Bush enjoyed attending funerals. You know, when he was vice president, he attended so many funerals on behalf of President Reagan that James Baker coined the phrase, you die, I fly. He told told the vice president he was going to have that made up and sort of like a bumper sticker and put on the vice president's luggage. You you die, I fly. Okay, good. The truth is President Bush did represent the United States, um, both accompanying President Clinton Mm -hmm. and sometimes alone, uh, a number of funerals. And what he would always say, he would come over these funerals and he would say, I hate to admit this, Gene, but I had a really good time. Right, it was, right. You know, it was sort of a reunion mm-hmm. of world leaders at these funerals. And um, it, I know King, uh, well, when Rabin was assassinated in Israel, for example, President Clinton attended that funeral, but President Bush and President Carter went with him. I know he went to the King of of Monaco's funeral. I mean, Morocco, excuse me, Morocco, a lot of funerals. And he enjoyed them. And that's just, again, just a very odd thing to say. The bigger assignment that became his passion and became the talk of the world is when his son was president and asked his dad, and asked President Clinton to raise money in the private sector for relief for the huge tsunami that hit South Asia on Christmas Day 2004. It was It's probably one of the worst natural disasters ever. And the devastation was so widespread and at, you know, it, it was awful. And the U.S. government was doing everything they could and, and certainly our wonderful nonprofits groups like Doctors Without Borders, AmeriCares, Catholic Relief Charities were all going into the region, but they needed money. They needed resources. So the President of the United States asked George Herbert Walker Bush and William Jefferson Clinton if they would mind being partners. 
And they, of course, said yes. And then he asked them if they would mind traveling to the region in February following the Christmas Day tsunami to visit the countries, to visit the heads of state, to represent him, and to let all these countries know the United States is here for you. And as I say in the book, they left on that trip as having a working relationship. They came home best friends. And as Mrs. Bush called them, they came home the odd couple, which is is the name of my chapter in the book. I love it. You also talk about the really heartening relationship that President Bush had with Barack Obama as well as Bill Clinton. Can you tell us about the the um, the relationship with Barack Obama? I think that will be one of the surprises in my mm-hmm. book because the relationship with President Clinton is well known just because they did so many public events and public projects. Katrina, for example, Hurricane Katrina where they did so much, uh, raised $150 million. So every everybody sort of knows about the odd couple. President Obama and President Bush, their friendship sort of developed slowly but surely. It was very sweet. I think President Obama had a lot of respect for President Bush. He eventually gave him the Medal of Freedom. There is a funny story in the book about, I thought I maybe would get fired. It's the 20th anniversary of, I think, Points of Light. And we're going to do something at President Bush's library to celebrate it. And Valerie Jarrett, who worked for President Obama, had reached out to me and just sort of randomly and said, President Obama is sort of looking for an opportunity to do something with President Bush. They wanted to do something for the anniversary of the American with Disabilities Act. And we could not make it work on their calendars. And Valerie said, you know, President Obama would really like to do something with him. Could you keep your eyes and ears open? So late on a Friday night, I just sort of sent up a trial balloon to Valerie, sort of thinking out loud. I sent her an email and I said, okay, the 20th anniversary, the points of light is coming up the foundation that President Bush had founded on volunteerism. We're going to do a big event at his presidential library. Does that appeal to you at all? Well, she sends me this email back saying, President Obama is thrilled that President Bush has invited him to join him at his library to celebrate points of light, and he accepts with enthusiasm. Well, here's the problem. President Bush didn't invite him. I was just talking out (laughs) loud. You know, this was supposed to be a staff to staff thing. So this actually happened a couple times, both times with President Obama. So the next day I go into President Bush's office and I said, sir, I have something to tell you and you might fire me. And he looked (laughs) a little alarmed. And I told him, and he said, well, this is the best news ever. This is wonderful news that Barack is is coming to my library. Yes, yes, yes. (laughs) The answer, of course, is yes. But over the years, they did a couple things together. The funny thing that happened, and I wish I could remember what was going on in the world. This was toward the end, I think, of President Obama's term. He was getting some really bad press. He was, there was something going on and I can't remember what it was, but he'd been getting some bad press and he was coming to Houston to actually do a big democratic fundraiser, which is sort of key to the story. 
And President Bush called me into his office and he said, President Obama is coming tomorrow, right, to Houston? I said, yes, sir. He said, I need to meet him at the airport. I said, really? I said, okay. I said, that's interesting. I said, why? He said, well, Gene, when the President of the United States comes to your town, you meet them at the airport. And I, you know, I, I hate to, I could get a little cheeky with him once in a while. I said, sir, with all due respect, you never met President Clinton. You never met your son at the airport. <laughs> I said, why now? And he said, I want to go. I want to go. And I don't like some of the press he's getting. And I just want to make a point that he's our president and we need to support him. So that was one of the more fun phone calls I made. And there he was in his wheelchair at the bottom of the Air Force One steps waiting for the Obamas. And I had to laugh. They got off the plane and they talked and talked and talked. And one of the White House advanced people came over to me and said, you have got to pull President Bush out. The the president and first lady are late. We got to get them in the motorcade, <laughs> but they don't want to leave. And I said, yeah. "Yeah, this is your problem." Yeah, I said, I'm not. I'm not walking in front of the national press corps and pulling no. out my boss. You got to no. pull out yours. <laughs> All right. They, and then President Obama saw him just a few days before he died. He was here in Houston to attend an event at the Baker Institute. And his chief of staff had emailed me weeks and weeks before to tell me that this trip was on President Obama's calendar. And he said he would like to, he would like to come call on President Bush. I didn't have the heart to tell her then. I just wasn't sure he would still be here, quite frankly. But I told her, of course. So the day came and President Bush was not doing well. It was a Tuesday. He died on Friday. And I suggested to him that we cancel the visit. I said, sir, I don't think you're, you're up to a visit with the, with President Obama. And he said, yes, I am. I would like to see Barack. I will see him. So John Meacham, the historian who wrote the book Destiny and Power, he was in town for the same event. And John also wanted to come pay his respects. So I arranged for John to come at the same time. The Bush's son, Neil, came over to be part of the visit. So we're all in the living room having a nice visit. And President Obama looked at me and said, I want the room. Which I was taken aback. And I said, yes, sir. So I kicked out myself, Neil, and John Meacham. So the two of them could have a private visit. And then I caught John Meacham sneaking back down the hallway to eavesdrop to see what the two presidents were talking about. He said, Gene, this is a historic conversation. It's my job to eavesdrop. And he said, President Obama simply wanted to thank him for his service, service to his country. Very, very touching moment. moment. Yes, mm-hmm. yeah, absolutely. And Gene, you told us that when you first went to Houston, you went there with Mrs. Bush to help her with her book, and then you went to work with the president. How, how did you continue to interact with Barbara Bush And what do you believe was the secret of their wonderful, amazing relationship? (laughs) Uh, Well, Mrs. Bush was probably my main mentor and advisor while I was her husband's chief of staff. We would have good long visits at least once a week. Sometimes she would call me and say, have you lost your mind? 
that was always an interesting way to start a conversation. I also could, I was her speechwriter in the post White House years as well. So I, I had an ongoing role with her. I wrote all her speeches. She used to tell people that the secret of a good marriage was every, each, the husband and the wife each had to give 55%. And I think that's exactly what both of them did. They were funny. Would they disagree? Yes, they would. They were, I love watching the two of them try to get the other one to, to agree with what they were proposing. They would start to go around and around. They had this funny little dance they would do. And here's a little known secret. He almost always won. He liked to tell, he liked to perpetuate the story that she wore the pants in the family. He would talk about it constantly in his speeches and people loved it. And Mrs. Bush, trust me, a very strong person. But the truth is he knew he had her wrapped around his little finger and they would start a conversation where she would completely disagree with him. And by the end of the conversation, she swore the whole thing was her idea to begin with. <laughs> That's true. I, it, it was interesting watching him do that. You, you give so many great examples in your terrific book of President Bush's caring and very, very humorous nature. Can you perhaps just share a couple of examples with our listeners? He was a huge practical joke. He loved pulling practical jokes and probably the worst one he did. It was funny, but oh my gosh. I hate to tattle on two of the grandsons. I'm not going to tell their names. They were, you know, 13, 14 years old, not very smart at the time. They were looking up porn on their grandmother's computer in, in, in Kennebunkport and printed it out and left it on her printer. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> Yeah. You know, one of those great stories of mm -hmm. adolescence that you will never live down. Right. So Mrs. Bush was absolutely beside herself and, and that this had happened and that two of her beloved grandkids were, you know, looking up naked ladies on her computer. And so here was President Bush's reaction to this. And it's possible he had help from some of the staff. I swear I did not participate. Okay. <laughs> he drafted a very formal letter. We even created stationery, mailed it to her, that it was from the, fed, the, the federal attorney's office in Portland, Maine. We were in, in Maine when this happened. <laughs> informing her that it's come to their attention that she was trafficking and pornography <laughs> on her computer, which was a violation of federal code, whatever, whatever. Uh, and she is ordered to appear in federal court in Portland, uh, Maine at this time on this date. Well, the Bushes were famous for doing their mail in bed in the morning. There, there are two aides who would open and sort their mail, would take them sort of their homework every night. At the end of the day, and the Bushes were famous for waking up in the morning, drinking a pot of coffee, and going through reading their mail while watching the news in the morning. Well, that poor Mrs. Bush reads that letter at six o'clock in the morning. <laughs> well, can you imagine? Yeah. And I, she, and, and there were already some family members in there drinking coffee, and I guess they're all falling off the couch. And after a while, she caught on, but. Can, that, that is one of the funniest jokes he ever pulled. 
but he had a wonderful, wonderful sense of humor. And as far as his caring side, probably, you know, so many great stories, but the one that actually became quite famous because the picture went viral in his late eighties, he shaved his head to support the son of a secret service agent who had leukemia and little Patrick, who was five, was bald from his chemotherapy. His father shaved his head to support his son. President Bush's entire Secret Service detail shaved their heads to support their colleague going through this difficult time. And President Bush then shaved his head. And there's a wonderful picture of little bald Patrick sitting on bald President Bush's lap We ended up releasing the photo because Mrs. Bush was afraid that people would think, A, her husband had lost it, or B, that there was something seriously wrong with him, that he suddenly went from a full head of hair to not one single strand of hair. And the photo went viral. It was just a sweet story, and it has a sweet ending. Patrick is now 12 and has a full head of curly brown hair. Oh, that's wonderful news. Tell us about the trip back to, is it Chichijima? Am I saying that correctly? Chichijima. Chichijima, the the Japanese island that that Mm -hmm. then Navy pilot George Bush uh, was was flying over, was attacking when he was shot down in 1944. Why did he want to go back to a place that we know held such uh, traumatic memories for him? I think because his two, two crew members had died there. And I did not know this until an author named James Bradley wrote a book called Flyboys that focused on the pilots who were shot down over Chichijima during World War II. The pilots who were shot down and captured, all of them except one, were executed, and the commander cut out their hearts and ate their hearts. He was later tried as a war criminal and was executed himself. But James Bradley turned that into a book called Flyboys. President Bush was one of the few pilots who was shot down off Chichijima who was rescued. And during that interview for that book, President Bush told James Bradley that since September 2nd, 1944, not a day went by that he did not think of his two crew members, that he thought of them every day. And I think, I'm not sure what inspired him at this point in time. It was 2002, January 2002. He came in the office right after Christmas and he said, Gene, I've been thinking about something for a long time and I think it's time to do it. I need to go back to Chichijima. And he did not use these words, but this is, he needed closure. He needed to close that chapter in his, in his life. It was logistically a nightmare. It's very hard to get to Chichijima, which is a volcanic island in the Pacific. There is no airport. Um, The only commercial transportation is a slow boat from Tokyo, which takes 33 hours to get there. So ironically, what happened eventually is the Japanese government specifically the Japanese Navy, helicoptered him in. And as President Bush said, so the government that I was bombing, who shot me down, is who got me back there. 
And it was an amazing journey. He met the only other pilot. Well, he met, excuse me, he met the only pilot who was captured and survived, had not been executed. He'd been shipped off to a prison in Tokyo. He came for the visit. They had a wonderful visit. We gave them a lot of time and space together. And I think talking to each other was very cathartic. They'd never met before. He also met a Japanese man who had seen him shot down and had James uh, Bradley had actually found him when writing his book, Fly Boys. And his story was amazing. So I think that trip accomplished everything President Bush needed for it to accomplish. And the people of Chichijima were just thrilled that he came. And I remember as we left, President Bush said to me, I mean, the, the whole island turned out, about 2,000 people live there. He could have run for president and won in a landslide. They were just crazy over him, screaming and clapping. And they just were so excited. I remember one resident whispered to me that the emperor had come once, but that this was much bigger. And President Bush said to me, he said, you know, I wonder if they remember I bombed their island. I I wonder if I killed their grandparents. I wonder if I killed their parents. It bothered him. He's, but, you know, it time does heal all wounds. Yeah. It's amazing how the world has changed in just a mm-hmm. relatively exactly. few years. Gene, you mentioned in The Man I Knew lots of lessons you picked up from George H.W. Bush. What, which one do you consider the most important lesson? Oh, that's a hard question because there are so many. It might be he wrote this list of piece of 10 pieces of advice for young people that I put in the book. He wrote it for a magazine article. I love those 10 pieces of advice because there's just so much truth in all of them. But I think the very first one's my favorite. I'm actually turning to that page right now. He said to these young people that out of Adversity often comes challenges and success. And I think that's such a wonderful life lesson to learn. And then the very the very next one, number two, is don't blame others for your setbacks. That is such a great example. You know, all of us like to whine or woe is me. And certainly during the pandemic, the whole country, the whole world was woe is me. And President Bush, it's sort of like I said earlier, he was so good when a door closes, a window opens. For him to recognize as the first thing for him to say to these young people, out of adversity often comes challenges and success. It's such an important thing for all of us to remember. You have to, yes, lick your wounds, but then think about what happened. Think about how to fix it. And then move on. And that's what he did his whole life. Certainly what he did after 1992. He he licked his wounds. And then, as I pointed out in the book, when he died almost exactly 26 years later, he was one of the most revered men in the United States and the world. So I think that would be the most important lesson. Yeah. Well, he left behind a great legacy. What do you think he was proudest of from his years of public service? And what do you think his legacy is today? As far as public, I know what he thinks his greatest accomplishment was as president. I'm not sure that's what you're asking, but that's what I'm going to answer. That's, that's he definitely good. felt the reunification of Germany was his biggest accomplishment. 
Mm-hmm. Um, he was very proud, of course, of being part of ending the Cold War, which he'd be quick to point out Ronald Reagan began. He was very proud of the success of Desert Storm. But reunifying Germany was was a huge challenge, mainly because Margaret Thatcher and Francois Mitterrand, the president of France, were so opposed to it, as, of course, was Mikhail Gorbachev. President Bush always liked to quote uh, his good friend, Francois Mitterrand, who said to him, I like Germany so much, I think there should be two of them. (laughs) <laughs> so, you know, so it was it was and, and that's again where eventually um John Major replaced Margaret Thatcher. Brian Mulroney definitely I know was a good partner in accomplishing that. Brian Mulroney was very close to Francois Mitterrand, and together they sort of navigated those very complicated waters. So he was very proud that Germany was reunified and I think I cried just a little bit when I learned uh, when he died, the night he died, it just so happens the world leaders, I don't know if it was the G20 or what it was, I don't remember, but they were together. There was a big meeting of world leaders the night that President Bush died. I think they were in Argentina and Angela Merkel was quoted as saying she grew up in East Germany. And she was quoted as saying, if it weren't for George Bush, I wouldn't be here tonight. I wouldn't be chancellor of Germany. I would still be on the wrong side of the wall. So very touching quote. I, but I think his biggest legacy is that he always lived. He, he walked the walk. He didn't just talk the talk. He found a points of light based on this belief from his heart that any definition of a successful life must include service to others. And Points of Light is still going stronger than ever. The Bush family, they're incredible. The, his five children, his grandchildren. I'm expecting any day now, the great-grandchildren, to start volunteering. They all have such a great legacy of service. And President Bush truly believed that any problem that exists is being solved somewhere in America. And if we just all work together, we can solve our problems together. So I think that legacy of public service to get out there, to make a difference, to get involved, to give back, I think that's part of his his legacy. And I would add to that the Bush School of Government and Public Service at Texas A&M where it's a master's degree program encouraging young people to to do public service, to run for office, to join the the uh, State Department for you know to get involved in foreign affairs, to get out there and and serve your country. Gene, you've been sharing some really terrific personal stories throughout this whole episode, but. Let's go even further. I have some questions now about Otis <laughs> okay, right. 41. There Here we go. go. He was very competitive in all things. We know that, especially sports. Did he enjoy one sport more than any other? Oh, gosh. He was a huge sports sportsman. Probably, I think he loved fishing the most, but that's not competitive. Probably tennis. He was a great tennis player. He loved to play golf, but, oh, God, forgive me, President Bush. I don't <laughs> think he was very good 
he um, <laughs> he was a great tennis player. So I think tennis probably was his favorite sport. Right. But he was a speedy golfer, though, right? Mm. It, right. He <laughs> used to break the course record. He once he once played eighteen holes under two hours. Good lord! And he was cow. so proud of himself. <laughs> that he never did tell anyone what his score was. Right. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Now talking about personality specifically. What would you say is the biggest hand-me-down personality trait that his children got from him? That's a great question. Sense of humor. It is a funny family. They they all like to to tease each other and play jokes on each other and they're very funny. They they rib each other. They're very close and he was definitely the patriarch of that family, the big expanded extended Bushwalker family. And they have they have continued that it, it the family ties and that family run deep. I think that comes from their dad. So speaking of the family, the man had several children, grandchildren, and great grandchildren. Probably what he would consider his greatest legacy. What was he like as a grandparent when the kids came <laughs> over to visit? Oh my gosh, he ran a camp. He ran Camp Camp Walker's Point. He would organize games and competitions. And you'll have to read the book to, to I can't possibly explain the ranking committee in this podcast. You've got to see the picture to believe it. He had a, a, a pretend ranking committee. It was very complicated. And, and before you could play horseshoes or play tennis or participate in swimming races, the ranking committee had to approve you. You know, it was just one big, long, from morning, noon, and night, they never stopped playing together. And he was the camp counselor. He so full of energy. He was one fun grandfather. He would send them funny emails, and they adored him. But I'm guessing at that camp, there was broccoli was never served, right? You know, people have actually asked me if he really hated broccoli as (laughs) much as as he hated broccoli, he hated it. And I, I, I have had, he's been a bad influence on me because suddenly I'm 65 years old. And in the last year I've decided I don't like broccoli. (laughs) And and I remember he, he hated the smell of it and he didn't like it touching. You could not like people would serve it. And if it touched his food, he said, well, I can't eat that because broccoli touched that food. <laughs> so the funniest thing that happened on broccoli, guys, I'd gone to Pakistan with him. He was the UN representative for Pakistan. It had a huge earthquake. And he was sort of the UN envoy for Pakistan earthquake relief. He really did throw himself into the disaster business. So off we go to Pakistan because he felt he needed to go and check it all out. and. We're having a, they're having a big dinner in his honor. It's a, actually, it's a lunch. And I'm sitting at a table that was all ambassadors from other countries. It was, it was people from all over the world. I was very lucky because the ambassador from China to Pakistan had been the consul general here in Houston and I knew him. And so that was very fun for me. But we're saying this, I'm saying at this table and out comes lunch and broccoli is on the plate. And everyone at my table, again, you're talking about nine people from all over the world. They all gasped and they looked at me and they said, this is a huge international faux pas. And I said, 
I was so surprised to learn how many of them knew oh. he hated broccoli. <laughs> well, Gene, I found just this, this smother it in cheese and butter. That will help. He and and you, he would so disagree with that <laughs> because people people would try to do that. They would say, "Well, yeah. you never had my broccoli. You've never had my broccoli cheese soup. Right. You never had my fried broccoli." And he's like. <laughs> He was funny. Gene, what would you say was his most impressive skill that had nothing to do with the presidency? I feel shallow telling you this because it shows a shallowness on my part. George Herbert Walker Bush was a great writer, and it irritated me, gentlemen. I feel like all of us should have one God-given gift. You can sing. You can dance. You can paint. You can be president. You can write. I've always pretended my gift was writing. He was one of the best writers I knew. The book is full of letters and memos he wrote. He he just was a great writer. And I used to tell him, it just irritates me that you're such a good writer. He says, what, what's wrong with you? And I said, well, <laughs> you're a good president. You were a good president. Wasn't that enough? He never saw my point. But he was, he was, a, he was, a, he was a great writer. Gene, and and finally, my last question, can you summarize in just one or two sentences his post-presidency from your perspective? He left us a blueprint on how to live a life well-lived. You know, when someone dies and sometimes they'll say his was a life well-lived. Well, President Bush was that 2.0. And his post-presidency, one of the reasons I wrote the book, he left us a blueprint. If you want that to be said about you when you die, just do what George Bush did. He lived life with joy, with humor, with a big heart, with substance. And, and again, I, with his, he had a servant's heart. He left us, he left us a blueprint on how to live life. Surely a great and good man. We were lucky as a nation to have had him as our president for sure. Uh, Gene, you, you are an amazing writer. This The Man I Knew is a terrific book. What, what's next for you? I don't know. I people keep asking me that, and I'm just I don't I need to I need to figure that out. I but I will, and you'll be the first to know, gentlemen. I'll let oh, you good. know when I figure it out. <laughs> but this is this talking about him in this book. That's my mission right now, and what's been very gratifying to me. There is so much interest in him that I'm getting lots of invitations and it's all because people miss this man. So I'm going to spend the next couple of months talking about the man I knew and how lucky am I. Good for you. Well, we, we were very fortunate to have you on American POTUS today, Gene. Thank you Absolutely. so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Y'all have a great day. Thanks for listening to this episode of the American POTUS podcast. If you have a moment, please rate and review this show on the player you're listening to right now. We appreciate every word from everyone that listens to and participates in the podcast. We'd like to thank author Gene Becker for joining us on this episode about POTUS 41. More information on her terrific new book, The Man I Knew, can be found on AmericanPOTUS.com. While you're there on our website, drop us a note. We'd love to see your questions or comments on this episode or suggestions you might have or future topics. And if you haven't already, be sure to follow or like us on Facebook or Twitter. 
so you'll be the first to know about new episodes and announcements. Graphic design for American POTUS is by The Thought Bureau, an original music score by Jonathan Clark Music. Finally, it's our presidential last word from George Bush, quote, No problem of human making is too great to be overcome by human ingenuity, human energy, and the untiring hope of the human spirit.